Luke chapter 22, verses verse 66, all the way through chapter 23, verse 25, Jesus' trial is what we're talking about. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me, and if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you say that I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. Now, a few weeks ago, when we were looking at Luke 20, I want to remind you that we dealt specifically with this topic of paying taxes. And Jesus said very specifically, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God. There was no accusation of this kind that could have been brought against Jesus. But they bring him to Pilate with this, with this accusation. And he says he opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king, which would have been a treasonous charge. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowds, and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends because the, before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. And in some of your uh, translations, it'll say, now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why, what crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their 
you know, you read this passage and it's a dramatic sort of series of events and we typically refer to this as Jesus' trial, but no matter what judicial system you use as a point of reference, there is nothing in how Jesus was treated that qualifies as a fair trial. As we've seen repeatedly, the Jewish leaders were actively looking to get rid of Jesus. They had decided beforehand that Jesus was to be killed or should be killed. They didn't allow him to defend himself or have any witnesses to speak on his behalf. They allowed false witnesses, and this is, this is coming from Matthew chapter 26, verse 61, and Mark chapter 14, verse 57 and 59. They allowed false witnesses to claim that he would tear down and then rebuild the temple building in three days. They accused him of blasphemy before the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish high court and the legislature. And then that was a religious charge they're trying to bring against him. And then they accused him of treason, a political charge, when he was brought before Pilate. Both Pilate and Herod found no evidence of wrongdoing in Jesus, and yet they insisted on crucifying him. By the way, that reference to Herod there, remember what we looked at in the previous portions, right? Herod thought that this was John the Baptist come back to life. He, he, was, he was confused about what exactly was happening, and he was very curious to see this Jesus. And as it says here too, he wanted Jesus to do something. Right? He wanted a miracle. He wanted a sign. He wanted, to, he wanted to see something. And when Jesus wouldn't comply, he sort of, you know, disgustedly sends him back to Pilate. But you know, here he is, Pilate, Herod, no evidence of wrongdoing. I mean, they're, they're doing all this, and yet they can't find anything to accuse him or to make this accusation stick. And yet they insisted, the crowd insisted on crucifying him. Pilate releases a murderer, and then he finally, what we know from Matthew chapter 27, verse 24, he washes his hands of him, and he says, his blood is on you. I, I'm, I'm out of this. Now, it's a very, we refer to that act, and you know, people will even use that phrase, ah, I wash my hands off of this. But it wasn't that easy for Pilate to have done that. He had authority, he had jurisdiction, he could have said, but he and his wife had warned him saying, you know, don't do this, don't, don't have anything to do with this man. So we read about all this, but Pilate washes his hands off and says, I'm just letting him do, you can do whatever you want. And so this trial was in every sense a travesty of justice. This wasn't justice at all. That brings up the question, what is justice? What do you mean when you say that something or someone is unjust? Justice in the broad sense is that morally fair and right state of everything, anything and everything you know, around us. It is ensuring that there is fairness, impartiality, integrity, lawfulness. And you can think of justice in four broad categories, right? Distributive, which means determining who gets what. You can think of justice in terms of procedural, determining how fairly people are treated. You can think of justice in terms of retributive, which means based on punishment for wrongdoing, criminal system, all of that courts, so on. And you can think of justice in terms of restorative justice, which tries to restore relationships to rightness. So at least four broad categories. There are other ways to think about that, economic, all sorts of other ways. But in general, you can think about this. 
and in the world around us, and particularly in America right now, there is an outcry about injustice in every one of these areas. Injustice that is characterized by discrimination, inequality, unfairness, hatred, bias, exploitation, abuse, and racism. In short, in the world, there is injustice. Isaiah chapter 59, verses 14 through 15 says, Justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. In fact, throughout that whole chapter, Isaiah 59, it's replete with examples of injustice. It says this, No one pleads a case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments. They utter lies. That's in verse 4. Their deeds are evil deeds, and acts of violence are in their hands. Their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. They pursue evil schemes. Acts of violence mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. That's verses 6 through 8. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion, and treachery against the Lord turning our backs on our God, inciting revolt and oppression, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. That's in verses 12 to 13. You can readily relate to these words in Isaiah 59 that was written almost 3,000 years ago as you watch the evening news today. Injustice is nothing new. Injustice affects everything, affects everyone. But injustice doesn't typically get our attention until we're personally impacted or until it impacts someone close to us or when it impacts a group of people we identify with or it impacts a cause we have given ourselves to. And when we are impacted personally, then we are activated. We may act publicly. We may do something behind the scenes. Or we may just speak about it privately. But apart from some very obvious actions that you can get engaged in, where will you go to get justice? There isn't an institution or an individual that you can depend on to be truly and consistently just. And so people resort to their own solutions. Judges chapter 17 verse 6 says, all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Chaos, injustice, suppression become the order of the day. And individually we become cynical and judgmental. We judge the people who are not doing what we are doing. We judge the people who are activated and when we are not. We are dismissive of others and we start to evaluate all of these things according to what seems right in our own eyes. 
but our only solution when there is injustice in the world is that we would go to the Lord because it is only in the Lord that we can find true justice. God is perfectly just in his treatment of his creatures. He shows no partiality. That's in Acts chapter 10, verse 34. He commands, he commands against the mistreatment of others. Zechariah 7:10. He executes vengeance against the oppressors. That's in 2 Thessalonians 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 6, and in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. He is just in meeting out rewards. That's in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. And in meeting out punishments. That's in Colossians chapter 3, verse 25. He loves justice. That's in Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 8. In Psalm 89, verse 14, we read that justice and righteousness, which always work hand in hand, are the foundation of God's throne. In 2 Chronicles chapter 19, verses 6 through 7, when King Jehoshaphat appoints judges in each of the fortified cities of Judah, he says to them, consider carefully what you do. Because you're not judging for mere mortals, but for the Lord who is with you whenever you give a verdict. Now let the fear of the Lord be on you. Judge carefully. For with the Lord, our God, there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. Think about that standard of justice and what we do today. The justice of God, the fact that he is a just God, is culminated. It's the highest expression of that is found in when Jesus goes to the cross. And next week we'll be speaking about Jesus' crucifixion. This week we're looking at the trial, the, the false accusation, all of these kinds of things. But this was not an accident. This was not because Jesus was unaware that there's justice, pardon me, that there's injustice in the world. He didn't stand there and say, oh my, how come you're saying these things to me? Even before the foundation of the world, when that plan of God was put in place, that Jesus would come into this earth and he would die for our sins, it was not where it would be with the right justice in place. It was because the world was unjust that Jesus did what he did. And when he went to the cross, it was because God's judgment, God's righteous judgment, because God's true justice demanded, required a punishment for sin. He said there is, there, by justice, by being just, being impartial, there is a penalty for your sin. There is a penalty of death. But instead of you dying for your sin, I'm sending Jesus. I'm sending you my own son who will die in your place so that you may be set free. Knowing our condition and knowing that we are unable to save ourselves, God sent Jesus to bear the penalty of sin for our sake. So if Jesus was willing to drink that cup of suffering, if Jesus is willing to go through this trial as unjust as it is, if Jesus is willing to go to the cross all for the sake of true 
justice. And you can be sure that he will bear, deal fairly and justly with us. If he was unfair, unjust in one area, you could be saying, I'm not sure what he will do in this area. But because he is fair, because he is just, because he's willing to do that even to the pain of going to the cross and dying for us, you can be confident that God will be just, that you can go to God, that you can pray, that you can say, Lord, I need you to intervene. And when I speak about this, I'm speaking to you not of some global thing that's happening, but of something that's going on in your life right now. Maybe a family member, maybe a child, maybe a spouse, and you feel you have been treated unfairly, unjustly. You feel that there has been partiality. You feel that there's something that has come that has hurt you when you did nothing wrong. There's been a false accusation. What will you do? Do you defend yourself? Do you speak up? Do you try to assert your strength? Maybe in some ways you can. Maybe there's some opportunity for that. But I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you. Go to God. Go to God. He's the only one who is truly just. He's the only one that we can go to and say, God, because of what you have done, because you are fair and just and, and you will reign in justice, I can come to you. See, that's why in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, it says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We are not the judge. We don't pronounce judgment on anyone or seek retribution from anyone. We don't condemn. Instead, in our lives, we commit to act justly. You know, we don't need to define justice as the world defines it. We don't seek resolution as the world seeks it. We remain silent when falsely accused. We speak truth appropriately and consistently, even when it hurts. We seek to fulfill the will of God, no matter the personal cost. We help others, even if they reject us or take advantage. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 through 17 says, Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Zechariah chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. This is what we were praying through on our last Wednesday night prayer meeting this, this past Wednesday. In Hosea chapter 12, verse 6, it says, You must return to your God. Maintain love and justice and wait for your God 
always. This is what we were praying about in our fasting and prayer meeting yesterday. Isaiah chapter 58, verses 6 through 11. And you know, when we come to our fasting and prayer time, we typically will remind ourselves of this passage in Isaiah chapter 58. Because the Bible says, and God calls out to us, you know, it's very easy for us to get involved in all sorts of external activity and even to fast and to show ourselves to be righteous. That's what the Pharisees did. But the same people who fasted twice a day, who were diligent about their tithing, who were regular in the temple, who were observing all of the law, were the ones that stood before Pilate and said, crucify him, crucify him. They failed to see Messiah standing right in front of them. They failed to administer true justice, even though the Lord had spoken all of this. And that's why in Isaiah chapter 58, verses 6 through 11, it says this, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. In the light of injustice around you, what's your response? Is it to rail against the injustice? Is it to condemn? Is it to point fingers? The Bible's actually very clear. That's not our responsibility. We're not to judge, condemn, or do anything of that kind. We're to help those who are oppressed, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, take care of our own family members, be showing compassion and love. Just think about this. If every single church in the United States, if every single church in the world was truly obeying the Lord in this call to justice, what would the world look like? I'm not saying what legislation needs to happen. I'm not talking about what's in the judiciary. I'm saying we in the church, what are we doing? What is the message that we are paying attention to? Do we live our lives this way? Led by the Spirit of the Lord, to administer true justice. And again, there may be limited opportunity. 
There may be an opportunity right through work. There may be an opportunity through the person that you're, you know, your neighbor. There may be different things. But if we're not praying this way, if we're not asking the Lord for this, if we're not seeking this, we will miss those opportunities. We will go right by the person who is in need. We will, we will ignore the cry for help. Because we're not praying, we're not seeking, we're not asking. So instead of all of the other things, this morning I want to challenge us that in light of what Jesus did at his trial, we would say, Jesus, I want to be like you. I want to seek true justice and administer that in faith and in love. Because you see, in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, the Bible says, I have shown you, O man, O mortal, what you should do. To act justly, or to do justice, and to walk, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Lord has shown us what we should do. The Lord has said to us, I want you to act justly. I want you to do justice. I want you to pay attention to these things I've already told you. You don't have to go somewhere else. You don't have to look for something else. I've told you, this is how you can be acting justly. And I want you to love mercy. It's only because God is merciful or God was merciful to us that we are here doing what we're doing right now. We didn't deserve it. Our sin and our guilt required punishment. But God showed mercy to us. And so we say, Lord, we want to love mercy. Someone that has wronged you. Maybe even now as I'm saying this, you're remembering a loved one who has wronged you. Show mercy. Ask the Lord, Lord, how do I reach out with mercy with, to this person? How do I reach out with compassion to this person? How do I make sure that I walk humbly? Most of the time, our outrage, our offense, our opposition to something is not because of true injustice, but it's because of our own it's because of our self-righteousness. It's because we are seeking our way and we want to be lifted up. When that doesn't happen, we say, oh, this is wrong. This is bad. But the Bible doesn't call us to do that. The Bible's calling us to love mercy and to walk humbly before our God. When we live in that kind of humility, when we live in that kind of merciful attitude of the heart and the mind and our hands in terms of what we do, there's going to be a difference. There will be an impact. There will be a difference in the people around us. There will be a difference in our communities. There will be a difference in the nation. So I want to challenge us this morning and I want to say that we can apply this word only as we pray. Like I said, pray for these things. The word is pretty clear. This is what true justice looks like. So now pray.
pray. Pray and say, Lord, how do I do this? How should I be involved? How do I get engaged? We've had some opportunities in the church to feed people. We've had a food distribution program in the past. We've done some things in the past to do our missions yard sale and other kind of activities where people come and get stuff. We've done other things where we have reached out to people and helped them and just been a blessing. In the past few months, many of those activities have been curtailed a little bit. We're looking to see how we adjust and what we should do and how we should respond. But I encourage you, don't wait for, don't wait for the church to do something. We are the church collectively, and we are the church as we work individually, as the Lord prompts us. So look for those opportunities. Apply the word by saying, Lord, how can I act in love? And what, what you can do personally, what you can do in your sphere of influence is going to look different from what the other person can do. It's not going to be the same. We can't dictate from here, from the pulpit, you can't dictate, everybody go do this, right? When there is an opportunity for a corporate activity or an event or something like that, we encourage everybody to participate and to be able to reach out to the community, to be a blessing, to help others. Great, wonderful. But in the absence of that, don't wait. Don't wait. Pray and say, Lord, how can I act? How can I act in love? How can I act with justice? How can I reach out and show somebody else the Lord God Almighty, the true source of justice? We were meant to stand trial for our sins. We were meant to stand trial. And we would have been rightly accused of our sins. Jesus <laughs> committed no sin. But instead of passing or instead of having a sentence passed on us for our sin, for our guilt, for our transgression, God passed that sentence on to Jesus. This morning as we participate in the communion, in the Lord's Supper, Oh, in addition to everything else, thank God that he is just. We are participating in this Lord's Supper because of his justice. We're participating in this Lord's Supper because he said, okay, there is a punishment, but I'm going to bear that punishment for you. We are participating in this Lord's Supper because even though God is uncompromising about his justice, he is unrelenting in his love. He is unconditional with his love. And he is extravagant with his mercy. That's why we are here. That's why we're participating. So even as I pray and then we transition to take the, or participate in the Lord's Supper, if you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about the Lord's Supper, I said to you one of the biggest things one of the, the primary reasons that we are to participate in the Lord's Supper is because it is the fellowship of believers. We remember the sacrifice that the Lord has done for us, but in our participating together, why, why do we do this? Why observe this? Why come in this, this ritual? Why do it? Because a very important part of it is that we are 
participating in the fellowship with our believers, with our brothers and our sisters. And that's why the Bible says, discern the body of Christ before you participate. And if you have anything against your brother or sister, go take care of them. And then come with your sacrifice. So we participate this morning. Because God is just, and his justice was meted out to us in these ways. But we also want to participate because we show justice to others. Not demanding our rights, but loving, compassionate, merciful, forgiving. Getting rid of roots of bitterness in our own hearts. They may have, they may have done everything to offend you and to hurt you and un, that you were not deserving of in any way. You were falsely judged. But will you show mercy? Will you say, Lord, come, work in my heart. Heavenly Father, we thank you. That, Lord, your word is a very powerful reminder to us all the time. All these verses speak clearly, and we pray, Father, that we would pay attention to it. But this morning, Lord, we are reminded afresh that you went through a trial. You went through what was supposed to be a legal proceeding, a judicial proceeding, a governance of, of law, but it wasn't. And in the middle of all of that, Lord, you stood silent before your accusers. Lord, you knew what was coming. You knew what they were doing to you. You knew that they were going to crucify you. And yet, Lord, you spoke with compassion, with grace, with love. Father, we thank you for that. And thank you, Lord, that because of that this morning, Father, we can come together. We can receive your care. We can receive your justice. We are the recipients, Lord, of freedom in the Lord. And Father, as we seek to participate now in the Lord's Supper, the Lord, prepare our hearts. Prepare our hearts. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Father, in a world of injustice, Lord, when there is nothing that is keeping people morally and spiritually grounded, every person does what they think is right in their own eyes. In the middle of all of that, help us to look to you. Help us to look to you as the true judge. Help us to look to you and not take matters into our own hands. Help us to look to you and not condemn anyone. Help us to look to you and to love and to care and to give. Hallelujah. Father, help us to look to you so that just as Jesus did on the cross, we would be able to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They've been led astray. Lord God, let your light shine. Let your justice shine bright. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord.